I'm Buzz Knight. On this episode of Taking a Walk, this walk is part of the two-part series focusing on the Home Base program. Home Base is a collaboration between the Boston Red Sox and Mass General Hospital. Retired Brigadier General Jack Hammond is the executive director of the Home Base program. The general has a legendary career in the military. Among the experiences, commanding general of U.S. forces in Kabul, battalion commander in Afghanistan and Iraq. His leadership skills are unparalleled, and his dedication to excellence is at the highest level. General Hammond, it's an honor to be taking a walk with you here in Charlestown. Thank you. I mean, we're at one of the most historic parts of the city here with the USS Constitution. We can see the Old North Church right across the water and the Bunker Hill Monument right to our back. It's an unbelievable place. It still evokes so much uh, emotion and memory and passion. And as we're taking a walk today, uh, there's some pretty serious times that are going on uh, in the world that affect our country. And I would be remiss, General, if I didn't uh, ask your opinion of uh, the uh, crisis with, uh, with Russia and Ukraine and uh, how it affects us. Well, we, we've kind of walk, boxed ourselves in here a bit. Um, for the past four or five years, Putin has been signaling that he's going to try and rebuild his Soviet empire. And he's made no bones about it. Uh, for those that don't know, um, he's a career KGB officer that grew up in the KGB. And when the Soviet Union fell in 1990, um, he was horrified and angry and humiliated. And that's a bad combination for a guy that's pretty much a dictator. Um, and you can see over the past 30 years how he has seethed. Uh, with anger about this, trying to get some kind of primacy role for Russia and, and restore that the glory days of what he considers the Soviet Union. Um, and one of their big uh, red line issues is not having buffer states around them. And first of all, they, he was completely um, uh, enraged when, this, when those breakaway republics like Lithuania and uh, Latvia joined NATO. Um, that to him was treachery. Um, and then when you look over at the Ukraine, he lost all his buffer states. And going back to the czars, Russia has always wanted those buffer states around them to protect Mother Russia. And when they lost those and then they flipped and they became part of NATO, that was the ultimate. And so you're going to see him right now put his cards on the table. And, you know, we've threatened him with um, all sorts of sanctions. He's factored that all in. That, that's not going to scare him. So the real question is what's going to go on over the next few weeks um, and how far does he go? Because he's going to go, he's already, I mean, he's already hitting it with some, and he's already laid claim to the Ukraine. Uh, but sitting right down the road from them, you know, you've got Poland connecting to that. You've got Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia that are all NATO members. And if he touches any one of those, Article 5 of NATO triggers this event that could be another world war. And across the water, we've got China waiting with, you know, big eyes open, trying to see what we do with a very strong eye towards Taiwan using the same premise, right? Um, and, and I know I'm going long here, but I, I want to share one point. Uh, there's a great book written by a professor uh, one of a course I took at Harvard, um, uh, Graham Allison, called Thucydides' Trap. And he highlights all these major wars in the world that have taken place where, where they, they happen by second order effects, unintentionally where countries didn't want to get into war. And, and a lot of times it, it's a collision point between ascending and descending uh, powers. And, you know, one of the most notable obvious is World War I, you know, the, you know, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. 
you know, who cared what happened to some royal member of the, you know, some royal household family member in Serbia to create a war where 40 million people died as a result of that one assassination, but it happened because the trigger points were all there. And so what we, what we worry about now is one of those trigger points where somebody makes a mistake, somebody misinterprets something, and then next thing you know, it's a full-blown war and the war escalates. And, and you can see, because of the collaboration between China, Iran, North Korea, and Russia already, each of them knows they could never beat the U.S. or NATO independently. But if they all nipped away, it's like a pack of hyenas going after a lion. You know, one-on-one, -on -one they'll never win, but a pack with one lion, you never know. Oh, my God. So do you look at this and think that, um, you know, um, our allies can play a particular role to sort of divert this? This has really got to be a collaborative uh, effort, doesn't it? Well, so part of this is a day late and a dollar short. For the past five, six years, they have propped Russia up. Russia, you know, has wanted to do this since the 90s, but they were broke and they were incapable of doing it. What props Russia up is when oil goes over $40 a barrel and through the support of Germany, France, and all these European countries that are at most risk. You know, we're not at great risk. They're, they're at the biggest risk. I mean, neighbors, right? Um, they've propped oil, uh, the price of oil up to $100 a barrel right now, and it will rise when this thing kicks off. And so, you know, all our sanctions in the world don't matter. If oil goes to $200 a barrel, he'll just make that money up on the other side. And some will always buy oil, you know, as we've learned. Saddam was selling oil. You know, they created all sorts of ways for it to get out there. So his oil will get out there and people will continue to buy it. The question is, what will they do? And how solid will NATO um, align to protect themselves, right? And then moving forward, um, Russia needs to know there's long-term economic consequences that will put them back in that state of ruin. Um, there, there are other things we can do and we should be doing um, that include um, starting to empower um, the, the um, uh, local groups that are going to fight back with the right type of missiles, weapons, and systems so that they can, they can start causing some havoc back there. Uh, Russia can't sustain this forever. Uh, and if all of a sudden over on the Georgian border, they start getting into some trouble. They have to shift troops over there. If, if you know, I don't know whether Belarus will do it, but some of the other countries we've been working with in that part of the world, and certainly Latvia and Lithuania, if there's a little stuff over on the border there, he's got to divert troops. He's got most of his troops right now concentrated there, and it's expensive to keep them there. So he won't do this forever. You know, something's going to be happening shortly. Um, but the question is, how long can he sustain it? And then, you know, much like in Afghanistan, he left because they couldn't solve the problem and they were bleeding financially. And between that and Star Wars, we bankrupted the Soviet Union. Um, that's the methodology we probably want to do because we want to avoid a shooting war. They are a nuclear power. And he's already made that point last week to remind everybody of it. Blessings to our leaders and blessings to our troops. And we'll leave it at that right now. And then one last thing I'd just like to add. There's a lot of political division in this country on which side you're on, Democrat, Republican, and it goes back and forth. And it's pretty... Um, pretty aggressive these days, but I would I would just caution everybody on any of that right now and just remind them that when you're on the plane route for the pilot Yeah, I mean maybe this can be you know an odd byproduct that unifies people I yep. mean God I could only hope right because it's not the happening. stakes are high. Yeah, the stakes are high Well general uh, let's saunter around Charlestown yep. a little bit and take a walk um, How do you use taking a walk? Um, when you are, you know, maybe in a 
situation where you're stuck with a particular problem or you just need to kind of unlock and sort of break out of it, how do you use taking a walk to help you? Well, I, I think no matter what, a nice walk helps you clear your head and think of all the opportunities, kind of work through some of the challenges. Um, I tell you over the years, my wife and I uh, regularly go for walks and talk about issues that are going on with our family members or with each other. Um, there's a beautiful lake in Wakefield, Lake Quantapowit. That's a nice three-mile three mile loop. Um, we live up in West Newburyport, and there's some great trails up there. That it's just great to you know get get into a, outdoors. You get back to nature and you have a conversation without all the noise. Yeah, really, I think, uh, especially the last couple of years, taken to the outdoors as well has been so necessary because people have been cooped up, right, General? I mean, well, that's the thing. I, I think you know, once the pandemic hit in full force. I've never seen so many people out walking again. Uh, there's a lot of COVID puppies that are out there, so a lot of people got dogs because they were home now and they could actually have a dog. Uh, they didn't have to leave it, you know, sheltered or doggy daycare and all that silliness. And so a lot of people are out more and taking advantage of living in a great place like we do. It's a beautiful place and, uh, and it's nice to see people out getting out for sure. So um, how did you first know at uh, a point in your life uh, that uh, you were going to uh, spend a career in the military? Uh, like many things, and as a young person, I didn't, I didn't know. There was no grand plan initially. I, uh, I knew I wanted to serve our country. Um, my, in my mind's eye, I planned on doing it for three or four years. And I looked at all sorts of different options, and finally I just enlisted in the Mass Guard so I could uh, um, do it on reserve status while I was in college and that was my plan and by the way in Massachusetts I went to UMass and so they offered 100% free tuition and so it solved my other problem um, and so that was my plan was to come in do four years I'd owe two years after college and uh, you know do my part and once I get in I enjoyed what I did and I went on active duty and made a career of it and that four years turned to 20 and at 20 I stayed in for a little longer and it was another 11 and it's amazing how time flies when you are enjoying what you do and who were the people that shaped you um, in terms of uh, leaders especially either associated obviously with the military or outside of the military so in different phases of your life there's different people right I mean obviously someone that shaped a lot of my life is my wife Colleen we met uh, as lieutenants and we've been together for 35 years and so she's taken off a lot of the sharp edges um, and there's probably a lot of grateful soldiers for the fact that she's done that over the years <laughs> um, but as, a, as an army officer uh, I was really fortunate to have uh, some really good folks early on that got involved with me I'd say one of my company commanders um, Alex Ahopoulos was a great guy um, he's one of my first company commanders Vietnam veteran combat infantryman down, you know, um, uh, with the 9th Infantry Division in Vietnam, and uh, Al was just such a great uh, mentor on leading troops and the importance of it. And he spent his year in Vietnam in the Mekong Delta, where it was always raining. I mean, it was wet. It was monsoon, and it wasn't met. It was jungle. Um, and when you know, and amongst all of that, people are shooting at you. And so he taught me about always keeping a good, positive attitude and taking care of your soldiers. I had a battalion commander that was a Green Beret in Vietnam. 
um, and he taught me a lot about planning and operations. So at different points, and then obviously I have a very close friend uh, who's a retired command sergeant major who I've known since the 80s, and he was my command sergeant major in Fallujah in 2003. Um, and he gave me that other perspective of, you know, number one, don't ever get full of yourself because you're an officer. And, you know, work with the NCOs, but you're still in charge, and you always got to factor in taking care of people when you do stuff. And it kind of led to a philosophy that I've adopted for a long time now, that it's no matter what you try and accomplish, it's always about people and stuff. You got to get the right people, and then you got to give them the right stuff to do the job. But in the absence of even stuff, it all comes down to people. So when you commanded in Fallujah, uh, how many people were uh, part of your, your watch? Well, so it was interesting. Um, at, at that point in my career as a battalion commander, and before we shipped out, um, we did other missions, um, so at post 9-11. And so in my battalion, I had a battalion of soldiers. Uh, there were a thousand soldiers in my battalion. And right after 9-11, we had Homeland Security missions we were given uh, to secure reservoirs, bridges, all these installations and critical infrastructure. Um, and then after two weeks, um, that mission ended. We were ordered to secure seven U.S. airports. If you remember back then, sure. um, there was no such thing as TSA. We had to go in to oversee the security at the airports, working in hand and glove with the state police. Um, and we did that for nine months. And as that mission wound down, we received orders for Afghanistan. And so in June of 2002, we received orders to report in July to ship out. Um, we got ready, we shipped over to Afghanistan, and then the missions got all tangled up because everything was tangled up in the early stages. That was the second rotation into Afghanistan. Halfway through that, I received orders to reform upon return for the invasion in Iraq. And so they kept my headquarters, but I picked up new units. And as we uh, entered into Iraq, um, I moved up into the northern part of the Sunni Triangle into the Balad region with a battalion of two infantry companies, uh, two military police companies, and we had roughly 700 troops. Um, after 30, 40 days, I was told to split my headquarters and form a second battalion 100 miles away in Fallujah, and they gave me additional units. I had a military police company. I had uh, psychological operations teams. I had counterintelligence teams because the mission was direct action mission to take down the insurgency in that area as a counterterrorism kind of group. Uh, so I had two different battalions, probably all told, probably back to a thousand again, but split between a hundred miles. Um, and so it's difficult, you know, to try and keep track of that. And as you get senior, you 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 take charge and lead, you know, larger formations of soldiers. So when you think of leadership lessons that you learned during those particular periods, um, what is transferable from those lessons to the leaders of today, no matter what they're leading? Well, I, I think everything starts at a beginning, right? And, and what, the, what the U.S. Army does, and, and so if you put it in perspective, the military provides us the best opportunity to look at leadership. So people go to medical school to become doctors. People go to trade school to become plumbers and electricians. They go to aviation school to learn how to fly and become pilots, right? There is no school in civilian life that trains you to become a leader. There's nothing. You know, you may say business school. I've looked at the curriculum, I've, I've gone to it. They, they have maybe a class out of the curriculum and one, one three credit class doesn't make a leader. Um, you know, you can answer questions. 
the U.S. Army in particular grows leaders. That's what we do. And I think through all um, ROTC, West Point, and uh, OCS and all that stuff, we grow somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 new, brand new leaders every year, and we've trained them all through college, right? It's a pretty strong curriculum. Um, at the same time, we are in a leadership development program for people that are already in at different points in their career. 400,000 leaders are going through leader development training constantly. So every year we're training 20,000, 30, 40,000 new ones, but there's always 400,000 that are somewhere in progress of leader development. And there's really three components that I see. And, you know, one of them is training. You actually have to have formal training. You don't just ignite somebody and tap them on the shoulder three times and say, you're now a Lord. Um, you got to go through a process and learn, right? Then there's also mentorship. You've got to have folks, like I named a few of the folks that were mentors for me at different points in my career. And then it's experience. You got to have those jobs that are building block to give you the on the ground experience to be prepared for that next job. And so the military does a very good job of giving you all three so that as you rise, and by the way, if you fail, they kind of move you over to the side and, and you may stay in the army, but you may not be in a command position anymore. You may be a staff position because it's just not your thing. Uh, and that doesn't mean you're bad or good. It just means that's not your skill set. You may be a, an amazing guy on, on, on lining up artillery pieces or you know, public affairs or personnel or logistics. You may be a logistics excellence guy, um, but you just don't have those leadership skills to command at that next higher level. And so there's a process to find work and, and, and find your skills and leverage them in a different way. Um, you just don't see that in the private sector. And what you do see, however, though, is failure. Um, right now in the private sector, and I've seen that in the last decade since I've been out, um, there's, an, there's a void of leadership not avoid people in leadership positions, and that's a problem. So when you have that misalignment where you have all these people in charge, you got a problem. And in, in, in stable, consistent times, you can muscle through it with enough people. During a crisis is when you see mishap, right? No matter what it is. Uh, anytime there's a crisis somewhere, if a leader fails, it's highly visible because the impact is can be catastrophic, right? What happens when volatile and instability becomes enduring, which it has since 2020. Now you've got a real problem. And so what we're looking at in this country is we've got a situation where we have an enduring time of persistent change and instability, right? That we're facing because every week change, we don't even know when Omicron's here, it's not. We can go out, we can't go out. We can go back to work, we can't go back to work. We're gonna have a hybrid force, we're not gonna have a hybrid force. So you're gonna have people leading organizations that really don't know where they're going because they're not sure what their, their, their stability is. And when it's unstable, that's when leadership matters most. And if you don't have people that are qualified and good leaders, solid leaders, it, that, that, it's much more noticeable when you see the catastrophic effect of all these businesses that went under in 2020 and 2021 because they didn't see it coming. Uh, and, and shame on you because, you know, it was telegraphed nine months before it came. And that's on the government and the private sector because the government failed. You know, we had plans in place on Homeland Security to have enough ventilators. There's a, there's a list of catastrophic crises that you deal with in Homeland Security. One of them is the pandemic. Um, back in 2007, I was on Governor Romney's Homeland Security Advisory Group as an Army officer. And they had people from the state police, they had people from MEMA, they had people from the hospitals, fire, you know, everybody. 
when they got to the pandemic, that's a, that's a shoulder shrug. They had plans for everything, the two they didn't have plans for and they didn't develop solid plans for were cyber and pandemic. Cyber just is elusive for people and it's really not that hard, but it, it's one of those things that um, law enforcement doesn't look at because they think it's techie. And techie people aren't in the business of enforcing it. So it's a void and it's still something that we're very vulnerable for. When it looked at the pandemic, unlike every other catastrophic man-made or natural disaster, those are focal points. So if there's a hurricane, if there's a flood, if there's a tornado, if there's a winter storm, you can bring resources from the United States out of the affected area into the area. You can draw on the full FEMA resources to help solve the problem like we did in Katrina. Do you know what I mean? The National Guard brought 600,000 troops in in five days. Phenomenal, or whatever the number was, 300,000 troops. Crazy, crazy number, but in five days because they were unaffected. A pandemic simultaneously wipes out the country. And the problem was the preparatory things to do to have PPE on hand, to have ventilators on hand. That was all identified back in 2007 and 8, but it became a, a, a budget thing where they said, it's not really going to happen, let's use that money for something else. So the money was given to them, that's the other sin. All the states got money from the federal government to buy all that. Um, and so if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you face a price. But as I mentioned a minute ago, the root of it all starts with you know, the individual leader, and that's rooted in strong values. And, and the Army has a set of core values that every member subscribes to. It's the Army values. Um, loyalty, duty, respect, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Nothing crazy there, but if you ingrain that in everybody's thinking and everybody looks that way, it can provide you with both an individual, um, well-calibrated moral compass for leaders, and then a guiding North Star for the organization. So that everybody's gonna act and behave in the same way that your organization has, has decided. And if you have that, everybody becomes mission-oriented the way you want them, and that's step one, and then you build on that to all the other aspects. Are you surprised the lack of scenario planning and leadership uh, you know, for crisis that still exists? It's stunning. Um, and again, you know, in the military, we're always doing contingency planning. Um, we had plans for what we did in Iraq back in the 80s because we knew um, Southwest Asia was a hotspot because of Iran. We knew Iran, Iraq, that area was a hotspot. So every hotspot in the world, there are army contingency plans in place. There's unit assignments that this is what we're going to need for package. And then when it, when it starts getting closer, they take those out and then they, they, you know, they, they source them better and they really take a hard look, but they've already looked at it once and they've already come up with some initial plans. And there's groups of people that always are looking at those. Same for Homeland Security. But in the private sector, they get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Um, they, they're worried about making mission this week. And it's, it's very short-sighted versus that longer approach. And that's, that's immature leadership. You know, if you look at what your needs are more long-term, uh, and that's why we don't have good leaders, because it's an investment in time, talent, and treasure. Everybody wants the immediate fix, so they'll say, we'll send so-and-so to the business school at Harvard. Well, guess what happens when they come back? Half of them then use that and go to another job because they've now got a Harvard MBA to, or, or Stanford or Yale MBA, right? Right. And so they don't make that long-term investment. They try and make it at the end. And the second thing they'll do is they'll try and buy a leader. So-and-so has a great track record. Offer him a crazy salary. Guess how long he stays until someone makes a bigger salary offer. They're not committed to your course. And so they don't want to do the hard work of growing leaders within their organization over time because it's hard work. And frankly, you know, unfortunately, we as a country have an attention span of a three-year-old on Mountain Dew. 
General, let's talk about the hard work that uh, you and your team is involved with that's so critical with home base. We touched base at the beginning of the pandemic because uh, home base and many other organizations um, were obviously going to be challenged through uh, the pandemic. Uh, how are things going now uh, at home base? And um, let's talk about how people can be more aware of helping our troops. So, you know, you touched upon a lot of key points just prior to the pandemic. And so it, it looked like prior to the pandemic, we were making some headway with some of the mental health challenges um, that our veterans were facing. Um, between the pandemic, two years of hibernation and isolation, which is the worst thing for anybody with a mental health issue, um, and then you combine that with the, the really catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Politics aside, if you're going to do it, do it, but the, the way they did it was just horrific, and, and as we saw the after effect of the humanitarian crisis. But for the warriors that participated there, it caused them to question the value of their service. Uh, for the military family members that lost soldiers, it caused them to question the sacrifice that they made. Um, and then, you know, as we looked at it at home base, um, we had veterans that were actively in care getting calls and texts from Afghan civilians pleading for their life. So picture if you're going through a two-week program to solve your post-traumatic stress issues and you're getting a call from Anne Frank telling you the Nazis are banging on doors and I'm next and you can't do anything to help them. Right. How does that help you as far as the moral injuries you've sustained? You're, 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 it's reigniting them. And so those guys were actively in care. We had folks that had gone through care and got to a good place and they got those calls and it ripped the scab off and, and they were now re-injured. And then we also saw a lot of folks that were doing fine that it was kind of below the waterline and this was that straw that broke the camel's back and then they needed help. And so we've seen an unprecedented um, call for care from across the veteran community. At the same time, we've seen a 20% growth in veteran suicides uh, since 2020. And so it, it, the, the challenges and the needs have grown. Um, at the same time, the ability to connect with them has never been worse because, as you know, the VA is a government entity and getting in contact with a government entity during the crisis has not been easy. Um, and frankly, you know, they're too big. They're too um, bureaucratic to really effectively deal with this. Um, they don't have a standard of care across the entire VA system. Every VA system is separate and autonomous. Uh, that's no way to run a, a network system, so they don't function effectively. Um, there are some excellent clinicians uh, and excellent VA hospitals. Not all of them, though, because there's no standard of care across the system that they apply. And so we see a lot of folks that are dissatisfied with that at home base, uh, and we do our best. And, and what we're able to do, um, and we're not perfect, nobody is, and anybody who claims that is, you know, a little bit of narcissistic, egotistical problems there. Um, but we're able to leverage the deepest resources of some of the best hospital and medical capabilities in the world. That's why home base is successful. And, and good enough is never good enough. We're always looking to identify new and improved ways to develop new clinical solutions for problems that are ancient. If you look at PTSD, that goes back to the dawn of time when two guys with clubs are whacking each other, right? One of them gets his head split open. One of them gets a concussion. That's TBI and PTSD. That goes back to then. You look at the Romans, the gladiators, the Civil War, World War I, trauma, 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 right? Traumatic brain injury, especially with the invention of gunpowder, when we saw that, the concussive effect and the, the banging around effect. Um, and so 
as we came into this new 21st century, we were able to apply a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience, whether it's from the NFL in the concussion world there, whether it's from the number one department of psychiatry, uh, MGH, that has 600 clinicians that all have different specialties and, and harnessing some of those to come up with these plans and, and developing uh, breakthrough uh, models of care, which in our case is that 14-day that program we've talked about where you, you're able to hit the pause button in life and just focus on getting better for two weeks. And we have you from sundown to sunset, sunup to sundown, and we're able to compress two years of therapy into 14 days. And I'll, and I'll go back to our Mountain Dew three-year-old. That's everybody, and conclude our veterans. They want to get better now. They're looking for that quick fix. If you go to traditional outpatient care, it could be a year. It'll certainly be 15 weeks, 18 weeks. And, and going to see a clinician once a week for three, four, five months is not only untenable because you can't get that time off of work, it's hard. And it's an injury of avoidance where you don't want to talk about it. And so you're trying to keep it down. You don't talk about it. They talk about World War II guys don't talk about it because they don't want to talk about it. It's the worst time of their life. You know, it's the best and worst, but it, uh, catastrophic. They lost friends. They have to talk about it. And so putting everything aside, putting them in a bubble and working on it for two weeks, morning, noon, and night, we get to it. And we have, we have incredible results. And we have amazing partners at UCLA, Emory & Rush that partnered with us and do the same thing. And over five years, we've got five years of data from four academic medical centers that prove how this works. Oddly enough, the government hasn't picked up on the program and started doing it themselves. So we'll keep doing it. Um, we've developed the nation's first program for the families of our fallen. Um, it's the only program in the country where these catastrophically injured family members who are sitting at the kitchen table when the veteran pulled the trigger in front of the kids, more injured than any veteran I've ever met, um, had nowhere to go for specialized care. We created a program for them. Uh, we created a special program at the request of Naval Special Warfare uh, for our special operations team members for comprehensive brain uh, health and injury treatment. Um, and that's been alive and running. And we see Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Delta Force members, because we're the only game in town with the, with the level of care that's required and accessible. Uh, and then most recently, what we're looking to do is build capability and capacity in areas that don't have access to care. And so we look at uh, communities of color where they don't have good psychiatric care and we're working with community health centers. Uh, last week I was in Arizona meeting with leaders in Arizona um, from both the government, the governor uh, asked us to meet with him and he, he wants to help build some capability that we're capable of doing, um, and the tribal nations in Navajo, Apache, and Hopi Nation because these veterans come back from war after serving this government and country and they live in abject poverty on the reservations with no access to mental health care. Uh, it's a sad state of affairs, but we're finding different solutions by looking at it, getting the right people in the room, again, right people, right stuff. Um, and we did it in Florida already, in Southwest Florida, partnering with great communities down there to build clinical capability to handle and care for their veterans. And they want to do it, and so we're there. So lastly, General, are there days that you you, you lose hope when you walk in to uh, lead your team, and uh, if so, how do you get past that moment of uh, that feeling? Yeah, so that hope is not, I get frustrated, but hope is something that I value too much. Um, we always talk about the fact that um, optimism is a combat multiplier, and I told you about my friend Alex Ahopoulos, and I asked him how did he get through rainy day, shot at every day, and he explained to me, you just got, you can do hard time or easy time. And, and that's the truth. You can look at it like, this is pretty good. 
Well, you can say, this is awful. How do you want to spend your day? And he taught me that lesson. So I, that stuck with me, and I've, I've, I've followed it my entire life. But hope is another thing. When someone loses hope, that's how we lose 22 veterans a day. They've lost hope for a day without pain. Uh, I, I never lose hope. I get frustrated, and then I try and find a solution. And I, I'm blessed with the ability to have a lot of access to resources to try and marshal those resources to try and solve those problems. And, you know, when I, run, when I hit the wall and the fact, you know, I, I keep talking to the government about trying to help support the funding, what we do. You know, we have to raise $30 million each year. Uh, we've raised $130 million to care for wounded veterans and wounded families. We have never received a penny from the federal government to, in reimbursement or grant money to do any of this. And we've asked every year for 12 years. So that's frustrating, but I won't lose hope because I know there's good people that want to do it. They just can't figure out how, and so we try and figure out how. Well, um, thank you for your work, your service. Um, since this is uh, a global podcast, um, give a little shout out to uh, the Home Base podcast that you guys have worked so hard at and done so much great work on. So uh, Dr. Ron Hirschberg, who is a uh, physical medicine rehab doc at Mass General and uh, Spalding Rehab. He works in the intensive care unit. Uh, he works brain injury stuff with the New England Patriots. Uh, Ron uh, committed to this course because as we know, it's such a great medium to get to people. Uh, we created a home base, uh, home base nation to support um, the work we do and to get the word out on what's available for care and tell the stories of amazing Americans that have overcome great challenges in life and adversity um, after war or those who have committed themselves to, as part of member of the Grateful Nation to support those people. And some of the stories are amazing. We've had um, uh, incredible people come in, whether it's um, you know guys like Shaggy, who is a Marine Corps veteran from Desert Storm and a household name in music. Uh, Spike Lee, after he did, did a movie, uh, had a big focus on uh, black veterans and some of the issues they go through. Bob Woodruff um, from ABC, an amazing, amazing guy. Sebastian Younger, who wrote this phenomenal story called Tribes, which really uh, goes well beyond the military to the fact that we're all mammals and we do like to be around other people. But Ron's been able to pull a great thing together, and I encourage anybody to go to Home Base Nation. Uh, same thing, it's in all their usual places, um, and learn a little bit more about what we do. Thank you for all that you do. Um, thank you for listening to this Taking a Walk podcast. General, it's been an honor, and I can't thank you enough. Well, thanks, Buzz, and I appreciate what you do and uh, our opportunity to tell our story a little bit. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.